So I walk in here and things are a little different. This is awesome. I, I don't know what happened here, but this is good. This is good. This is so good that I want to read this to you. Wow, this is loud. Uh, I want to read this to you, and this wasn't part of what I had prepared, but just sense to read it. This is Numbers chapter 13. This is, um, this is the Israelites coming out of 430 years of slavery. And, you know, after 430 years, you really start to think something about yourself, about your ancestors, uh, about, your pe- about your identity, about your value, about your worth, about your future, what you're capable of about your box, where you belong, where, where you don't go. Uh, you start to believe those things after, you know, much less than 430 years, but for sure after that long. And Israel goes in to this land of promise, and Moses sent, sends spies. Go, go check that land out. Here's what they came back and said. Ten of the spies said this. They said, we can't attack these people, the people who are currently living in the land of promise. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. I don't know how they knew that, but that was their conclusion. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw giants there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That reminds me of uh, uh, 1 Samuel, when they went to look for uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, they went to look for Saul. He was hiding out. He was hiding in some luggage. Seemed like a grasshopper in his own eyes. And then when Samuel went and confronted Saul, he said, uh, even though you think little of yourself, God thought enough of you to anoint you as the king. And so uh, we're going to talk about some of that today um, about freedom. And one of the things that I tell uh, everybody who comes in and does a a freedom session, a Wellsprings freedom session, I I start with this, um, that there is two big days in the day of a believer, and these are good days. The first day is the day you become a believer, you surrender to Jesus, and and you say, Jesus, my life is, is yours, I exchange lives with you. That's a good day. The second great day is the day that you become free. Unfortunately, sometimes there's a lot of miles between those two days. It doesn't have to be, but oftentimes there is. Because um, the Israelites were God's chosen people. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'll take care of you. Fast forward 430 years, and they're still in bondage. And so uh, the day you become a believer and the day you become free might well be two different days, but those are good days. There's freedom uh, in Christ. Well, since it's the uh, beginning of football season, uh, a lot of you know who Deion Sanders is, right? Deion Sanders says this. He says that as a great defensive back, he said, you know, people misunderstand the way I played the game. They think that I studied receivers. And he says, I didn't study receivers to to get to know their nuances and, and how they played the game. I studied coordinators. I studied offensive coordinators. I studied position coaches. He says, the West Coast offense is the West Coast offense. Whoever runs it, whatever part of the country they live in, it, it's the West Coast offense. And I studied these coordinators. And I looked at receivers, too, to know something about them. But big picture, I studied the coordinators so I could figure out what their tactics were, what their inclinations were. 
because receivers come and go. They might get hurt and be out of the game. I've got to defend the next guy up. And so the best way that he said he could do that would be to study uh, those coordinators and learn their tactics. And so we're going to learn some tactics today, and then we're going to learn how to do combat against those tactics. But I want to talk about relationship. Now, I know that I stood up here three weeks ago, uh, and I said, gosh, I think we've probably said about everything there is to say about relationships, haven't we? Uh, and then I proceeded to talk about relationships that day. Um, but wait, as they say on the infomercial, there's more. Because there's another relationship to talk about that we usually don't think of in terms of relationship. Probably you never have. I'd be shocked if anybody has ever thought of this in terms of a relationship. Okay? But here's the deal. I'm not going to say anything today, most likely, that you haven't already heard or you don't already know. So, um, you know, you won't be wowed probably by much of anything. But that's not usually the deal that you and I gain new information we didn't already know and it radically changes our lives. What changes our lives is what we do with what we know. And uh, a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, as a pastor, when I was a brand new Christian, he had a counselor come into his, or he was, somebody's coming in to do counseling. And I said, geez, you're a pastor. I thought you just read the Bible all week. But he said, oh, no, we do other things. Uh, he was counseling somebody. And I said, well, how does that work? And he said, I'll tell you exactly how it works. 90% of the time when I sit down with somebody to talk, um, they already know exactly what they need to do with most situations. Most of my conversation with them is helping them uh, maybe get to a point where they're willing to do something with what they already know. Sometimes they truly don't know which way to go, and so we talk about that. But most of the time, people already know, okay? And so as I talk this morning, as I uh, share what I think God has given us to share, uh, know this from James 4, okay? Just tuck this away, that for those of us who know the right thing to do, but we don't do it, it's sin. So I probably won't say anything you don't already know, maybe a couple things, but the things that you already know, if you don't do it, it becomes sin. Then you've got another issue to deal with, okay? Well, I'm going to start in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is a Babylonian, uh, he's captive in, in Babylon uh, under Artaxerxes, and if you remember the story, he wants to go build the walls of Jerusalem. That's the very short story. And part of what he has to do is not only build the walls, but he has to build some relationships. And so you see four levels of relationship that he has to build. And the first relationship he has to build is with the king, with Artaxerxes. And so in your life and my life, we've got relationships we have to build and maintain with people in positions of authority over us and positions of accountability. <clears throat> we all have people one way or the other in authority over us. We all have people, I hope, uh, one way or the other, who are to whom we're accountable. And Nehemiah had to build that relationship with the king because he can't just go flippantly and approach the king and say, hey, I'm going to take a few days off and go over here and build the wall. He's got to make an appeal. He's got to do it in the right way. And he needs certain supplies and he needs uh, letters of safe passage. And so he does it in the right way. The Lord leads him. So that's the first relationship that we see in Nehemiah. The second relationship is with the body of Christ, with other believers, with other uh, people who know Jesus. And what you see as you read through the book of Nehemiah is as he built the wall, he made it a point, he made it his, his business to build 
the lives of other people around him. And so he helped those who needed help in different ways, in different facets of their lives. And so there's uh, relationships with other believers. There's a relationship that Nehemiah had to build, that you and I have to build, and that's with God, obviously. And Nehemiah built his relationship with God by depending on prayer, by focusing on prayer, by pointing other people toward the Father, and you and I do the same. In him, we live, we move, we have our being, right? And so we have to build our relationship with God. But here's this fourth relationship that Nehemiah had in his life that you and I have, and you probably have never thought of it in terms of a relationship, and it's this. It's a relationship with the adversary, with Satan, the devil, Lucifer, by whatever name you want to refer to him. Um, Nehemiah had these contentious relationships with three guys that we'll look at in just a few minutes who kept coming all the time, kept coming and hounding and always trying to sidetrack him, distract him from the work at hand, always trying to question it, always trying to ridicule and put him down and over and over and over. And so there's an adversarial relationship that you and I have. And one of the dangers when we come to this uh, adversarial relationship is that we go to extremes. We go clear over here where we don't believe any of that crap. I don't believe in uh, Satan. That's a met He's a metaphor for like bad things in the world. Or we go clear over here where everything is about this devil and there's always something lurking around the corner that's about to to get me or, you know, somebody else made me do it or whatever. And so we go to these two extremes, and you know what? The enemy's fine with that. The adversary is totally fine if you and I go clear out there and maybe even come in from there a little bit. There's a lot of margin there. He's fine with, with either one of those. Here's what Philip Graham Riken says. He's the uh, president of Wheaton Bible College. He says, The devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist or to give us the false impression that he's a silly old character in a red suit with little horns and a forked tail, or to convince us that his devilish powers are so overwhelming that we're helpless to resist. But either way, he's got you kind of on your heels. You're always on defense, always looking out. And that's part of the uh, uh, enemy's tactic. Well, you might be lukewarm about the, uh, the existence of uh, Satan. I said, you might, might think that, uh, you know, oh, Satan, that's just kind of a metaphor for evil in the world, or that's a concept or whatever. Um, well, he's a real person. And if you look through Scripture, if we had the slides, I'd show you some Scripture. We've got all kinds of Scripture. You just think about what Jesus says about the enemy. He says that he's a liar and the father of all lies. Uh, that he came to kill and to steal and destroy. He couldn't tell you the truth if you paid to. That's a paraphrase. Uh, but you get it. You've read the scripture over and over and over and over and over again. Scripture is clear that Satan is not a concept. He's not a metaphor. He's not a, an idea kind of existentially floating out there. He's a real person who has a real plan for your life. If you've ever seen the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade for Christ, those of you who are alive in the 60s, right? Uh, I think it started out with this, this sentence. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Satan hates you, he also has a plan for your life. He does have a plan for your life. And his plan for your life is totally different than God's plan for your life. You can believe that. So Satan is a real person. Think about these things, these things that are real and not concepts. Think about uh, 21 years ago this morning. This is 9-11. 
where planes flew into buildings, and they flew into a field in Pennsylvania, they flew into the Pentagon, and people were killed. Several thousand, I think 3,000 or so, uh, lives were lost. Here's some more real people. About 23 years ago, a couple students walked into Columbine High School in Colorado uh, and killed 12 students and a teacher. People they saw maybe every day, probably weekly at least, went in and killed them. They didn't kill concepts, and the people with the guns weren't concepts or theories. They were people. I've seen a lot in the news here this last couple weeks or so. Forty years ago, Johnny Gosh disappeared from a paper route. And I think 38 years ago, a couple years after that, Eugene Martin disappeared from, from a paper route. Okay? We could go on and on and on with these kinds of things. But here's the, here's the common denominator. Two common denominators here, all right? Behind every one of these things, these are demonic. To take a plane and to fly it into a building, I mean, some of you probably saw that, maybe even live, and not. No, couldn't have happened. I have a friend, Christian, who was sitting in an office building in New York City looking out the window and he saw it and he, he, he was sure he didn't see what he saw. But that, that's demonic. You walk into a school or a shopping mall or anywhere, unfortunately we hear a lot of that these days, and, and open fire, that, that's demonic in nature. And so that's one of the common denominators. The second common denominator is this, is that Satan... One of the things Jesus says about him is that he masquerades as an angel of light. The enemy is a mask, masquerades. He's a fake. And so he gets on, he boards a plane. It's in Boston or wherever as a passenger. And then he becomes a pilot and flies a plane into a building. Goes into a high school as uh, one, of, one of your fellow students, one of your classmates. And he starts shooting. Comes up to a guy on a paper route, the theory goes, and says, hey, uh, paper boy, I'm looking for directions over here. Could you help me? I, I can't hear you. Come here, a little closer. He masquerades as an angel of light. Those are the common denominators there. But we need to understand how the adversary works so we can be ready. Now, Deion Sanders sa says he studied the coordinator. We don't want to study Satan we don't want to get too comfy with him. We don't want to study him, but we neither do we want to be unaware of his tactics, as the Scripture says. So we want to know a few things about what he's up to because we want to keep growing and walking with the Lord and be in that freedom, total freedom that Christ went to the cross for. Well, the series is called Origins, and actually today's the last day of the uh, this series. And... Um, so we're not really going to look at the origins of Satan because the Bible you know, has something to say about it. It's more implicit than it is explicit. But we've read Genesis 3 a lot through this series. And uh, Genesis 3, here's the bullet points from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals God had made. So the enemy's crafty. He causes God to question Eve. Hey, did God really say you shouldn't eat of that apple? And then finally he lies to her. Oh, you won't die. Go, go ahead. You, you'll be fine. And that's exactly what the enemy does. And like I said, we've read that almost every week, I bet, of this series. But let me pause and share a parallel truth because while that storyline is going, there's another storyline going on under the surface that's a little more insidious. 
Remember the Bible says that our enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion? That means he's not always right, big and bad up front, but that he hides and he stalks and he kind of lays in the weeds. So here's how he does it here. There's another storyline going on underneath Genesis 3. And it's from Genesis 2, and it says this. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into the nostril, his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. So let me give you a little background so you see the enemy prowling, being insidious. The scripture says that when God breathed the breath of life, I spoke about this, I think, was that three weeks ago? We talked about relationship. We talked about a conceptual view of God's love, uh, ruach, God's breath, God's essence, his personality. He breathes into to man at salvation. He breathes into the nos- his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul or living being. Some translations render that word. And here's the word. Here's the Hebrew word here. And so the, the goal is not to get all nerdy with Hebrew, but to teach you uh, something and to see a concept here, something that's happening. And that's this. The Hebrew word for soul, for being, is this word, and it's called nephesh. Nephesh means this. It means uh, life, but it means breath, but it has a deeper connotation. It includes no, mor- no morality, no right and wrong, no mortality, no sin, no death, no decay, nothing going downhill, no laws of entropy, right? Everything's just good. You know, we sometimes we joke and we say when life is good, we say, oh, it's all rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, that's the garden. I don't know if it's unicorns, but th- things are good. Things are really good. That's nephish. And so when God breathes into the breath, into the, the soul of man, uh, his essence, his cur- personality, his character, it's good. It's all innocent. It's all solid. Okay? To take breath, draw from the Spirit of God, total dependence. In other words, what God gives Adam and his wife is this He gives them life support. They're on life support. You and I are on life support right now, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're on life support. That's nephesh, life support, okay? Complete innocence. Then sin enters the world. Then we've got sin entering the world, and it brings something along with it. It brings a hangover with it. And the hangover is this, and Jason spoke about that hangover last week. Then Adam and his wife find a way to cover themselves because God can't cover me. I'm not looking to him. I cover myself and I run and I hide in shame. And we do that in a lot of ways. We do it in socially acceptable ways, become a super achiever, um, you know, make a ton of money, uh, a million things, a super athlete, whatever it might be, a super overachiever. And genuinely helping people even. But my agenda inside, and this isn't always the case, but for instance, my agenda inside is to make sure that I know that I'm okay. I need a stamp of approval. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to overachieve everything. I'm going to be the man everywhere I go. That's socially acceptable within reason. Okay. Or we go clear the other way to hide out, and clear the other way is shame and condemnation. I'm a piece of crap. And don't ask me for anything because I, I won't come through for you. I'll fail um, and I'll prove it. I'll just blow it right now so you won't even ask me. All, everything in between, you, you know the drill. 
Those are all ways of covering up. Religion is a good, good way to cover up because it looks so good. But it's religion. And it's separated from relationship with God. But it's a way to cover up. It's a fig leaf, okay? A lot of those things are just fig leaves. They're ways to, to cover up. And so that's all ways that we try to hide out. And here's what happens after the fall. After the fall, as you read Scripture, now the soul, man's soul's being, is no longer referred to as nephish. It's referred to as live, L-E-V. It's referred to as live. And live is this. Live carries the connotation with it of morality. Now there's right and wrong. Now Adam and Eve knew they, they blew it. It carries with it the idea of mortality. Uh, there's an expiration date. Okay, I'm, I only have so many years to live. I'm going to die. It carries with it the idea of decay, of corruption. Now the laws of entropy apply. Everything goes downhill one, at one way or the other. And so that is what happens with the human soul after the fall in the garden, after this, this uh, hangover. And here's what happens. Genesis 3, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves and I'll fast forward at the end of it God appears to them uh, looking for them and they say to him I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid so here's the enemy's goal okay Here, if you get one thing get this here's the enemy's goal the enemy's goal is not only to um, try to influence things in your life that will pull you away from God. So there's things that happen, instances, circumstances. His goal is more insidious than that. He's perfectly willing and wants to help you interpret what happened in your life. Did you catch that? So there's what happens, and then there's a way you and I interpret it. And he wants you to interpret it that you're a loser, you're no good, you blew it, you always blow it. You'll blow it again. And there's something wrong with you. Just fundamentally, there's something wrong with you. You're condemned. Now, we know God says there's no condemnation because we're in Christ, but the enemy sits there and keeps telling you, no, no, really, you, you are condemned. And so there's what happens that the enemy influences. There's also how he helps you and I interpret that. Okay, That's his goal, to pull us away from Jesus. He says you're deficient, you're a bad person, and that often leads to isolation. And I've shared with you before, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I've shared with you before uh, Proverbs 18, a person who isolates themselves seeks their own desire. They quarrel against sound wisdom. Here's the problem with isolation. I mean, there's about a million problems with isolation, but here's, here's one big problem with isolation. When you start, when you hear that voice and it's the enemy and you start doubting and condemning and piling on yourself and just keep it right there, here's the problem. What makes sense in a monologue gets exposed in a dialogue. So in my mind, I think this and this and this, and it makes 100% sense. I can prove it. it. I can validate it with experience. It makes sense. Yes, absolutely. This is what I think. I sit down and I start telling somebody about it, like 
you know, I told you about my pastor friend earlier, his experience with counseling people. I start talking about it, and my counselor friend, my pastor friend, he doesn't even have to say anything because he can see on my face the minute I start sharing all this stuff, the lights are going on. I'm going, this is all nonsense. This is, this is crap from the enemy. Yeah, I get it. What makes sense in a monologue gets exposed in a dialogue. That's why we need small groups. That's why we need one-on-one -on -one, uh, interactions with people. That's why we need uh, counselors. That's why we need uh, wellsprings. We need minist prayer ministry. Uh, we need just friendships, just people to hang out with uh, who know us, who we can bounce things off of, and they can tell us, yep, you're thinking right, or they can say, no, you are off base, okay? What makes sense in a monologue gets exposed in a dialogue. All right. Well, with all that in mind, I want to look at uh, uh, some of the tactics of the enemy, uh, the adversary, and see what he uses to accomplish his agenda. So if we go back to Nehemiah, uh, and of course we don't have the slide, uh, but if you read through the book of Nehemiah, you see all these tactics that the enemy used. There's and all the classics. You name the, the top classic tactics, and, and Nehemiah gets them. Gets shame, gets condemnation, gets ridicule, gets questioned, uh, gets put down, gets made fun of, gets accused, uh, come back later after there's a great victory, after the wall is built. Tobiah the Ammonite comes back and writes a letter to him, and, and when there's peace and everything seems to be good, Tobiah writes a letter to him to start this all up again and, and confuse everything. So there's a million tactics that the enemy uses, okay? And those enemies, his enemies have names. They're Tobiah, Sanballat, and Geshem. And their names have specific meanings. And what's interesting, if you look at their name, only one of their names has any negative connotation to it. The names of the other two are kind of godly. Uh, Tobiah uh, Geshem, I think, means rain. Okay, well, Nehemiah felt the rain of condemnation for sure. One of those names means God is good. God is my good. And so he comes to Nehemiah dressed up masquerading, what the enemy does, as good. Hey, I'm really here to help you, Nehemiah. Well, let's sit down and talk about this. But he's there to condemn. He's there to ridicule. So those those enemies have real names. Your enemies and my enemies have real names. But they're not people, because our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? The names of our enemies are guilt and condemnation and control and lust and anger and pornography and homosexuality uh, and guilt and blame. On and on and on. There's a million of them. A million of them. And some of those you've heard, some of those you wrestle with right now, but they're not human names. Those are all spirits. Every one of those are spirits that the enemy sends to hound you. One of the things we see in Wellsprings ministry all the time is a spirit of control. Jezebel. Jezebel is a bad person. Control. Always needing to control and manipulate and turn things around and position them just so, so that, you know, I can have a hand in things and make it all come out okay the way I want it, which leaves no room for the Holy Spirit whatsoever, chokes out uh, the Holy Spirit. 
And so there's a million uh, spirits that the enemy has uh, assigned against you right now. I said earlier, he has a plan for your life. Yeah, he sure does. So how do you know the mission when uh, a thought comes? How do you know when a thought comes or somebody says something? Let's see, is it right? Is it wrong? Because like I said, some people, you know, he masquerades. Some people, he will sometimes use people and they'll say things, even use scripture, kind of like the enemy did with Jesus. Might sound good, but there's, there's a little twinge to that. I don't think that's quite right. Are they complimenting me or are they putting me down? Because the enemy will use God's word to try to put you down. Here's what you do. 1 John 4, dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because false spirits have gone out into the world. So what's the test? How do we test these spirits? This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So what's the test? Does this this thought that I'm having, does this, uh, these words that this person is giving to me, does this habit, this pattern in my life, do they point me toward Jesus? Or what's their trajectory? Do they point me away from him? If I follow this out to its logical conclusion, where is it going to go? That's how we test the spirits. What's the trajectory? What's the mission? And so when you feel that, when you sense that, when you hear that, when you're under attack, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what not to do. Uh, first of all, um, don't be prideful. Because sometimes that happens as people grow and mature in the Lord. And we see this at Teen Challenge as guys get, get and women get, get uh, their legs under them, so to speak, spiritually, and get more confident walking with the Lord and doing combat with the enemy. Then it's natural sometimes to get a little cocky about that, a little prideful. Don't do that. Don't do that. Here's what can happen, Acts 19. Now, there were some itinerant Jewish uh, exorcists who tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits. They would say, I bind you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Eventually, one of the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? So the seven sons were not invoking Jesus' name, Kind of sounded good, but they weren't invoking Jesus' name. They were invoking Paul's name. And so here's the takeaway from that. Here, here's my another words for that scripture. Um, Satan doesn't give a rip about your rebuke. I don't think Satan gives a crap about your rebuke or my rebuke. I rebuke you, Satan. So what? He hasn't heard that before? Sure he has. All the time. Here's what he cares about, Jesus' name. One of the commentaries I, I looked at said this, Satan laughs at all those who attempt to expel him, either out of the bodies or souls of men, except by divine faith, saying, we command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They don't say whom we believe in or depend on or have authority from, but whom Paul preaches. That's where they went wrong. They were imploring Paul's name. As if they'd said, we'll try and see what that name will do. So we'll, we'll try to combat the enemy in Paul's name. Hey, we know Paul, so get out of here. And the enemy says, nah. But in Jesus' name, the enemy has to flee because he's already knows he's defeated. He already recognizes Jesus. He already 
uh, bows to the name of Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. They recognize his authority. They believe in him and they tremble. So the fact is the demons do already know him. Nehemiah's response, Nehemiah's response is very practical when he's attacked by these three guys over and over and over and over again. That's one of the tactics of the enemy is repetition. Here's Nehemiah's response, very practical. He positioned men to build with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other hand. So when the, the attack came, they'd be ready. He posted guards. And along the way, and this is part of the practicality, they prayed. He, he says over and over and over again, as you read the book of Nehemiah, we trust in God. The way this wall will get built is because God will enable us to. The way that the enemies will uh, back off is because God will implore them to. The way that we'll have success is because we seek God. And so Nehemiah's response is very practical. Jesus' response is very practical too. We go to the temptation in the wilderness and three times the enemy comes to Jesus and, and questions him using God's word and Jesus uses God's word over and over and over again and the enemy goes. To come back at a later time because he's persistent but we pick up the word of God, the sword of the spirit and so you put on the full armor of God don't put on part of it, Paul says. Put on the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of peace. Take in your hand the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pick up the shield of faith. You need all of that. And that's how we do battle against the enemy. And so here's a big takeaway for you, okay? And I don't mean this as a joke so, um, or to be cute. Uh, I use this as an example because many can you relate to it, okay? Jesus deals with Satan. Jesus deals with the enemy the same way you deal with the dog when he pees on the rug. You go, out. You exercise the authority as the homeowner, the dog owner, the rug owner, and you command him, out. The dog goes. And every time you see Jesus deal with demons, deal with spirits in Scripture, that is exactly what happens. Out. There's no show. There's no big drama. There, nothing like that. It's just Jesus using authority the same way you and I are able to. Here's what the Bible says. I've given you authority. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. We have authority. But the problem is, here's the problem. We've got the sword of the spirit. We've got the authority that God gave us. Oftentimes, we don't use it. There's a difference between knowing and doing. And so we don't always do what we know. Well, let me wrap up with this. Um... Here's a practical thing. Know God's word. Use God's word. Secondly, uh, don't create access for the enemy. Don't open doors and windows to, to your life. Don't roll out the welcome mat, as it were. If you're looking at pornography, if you're having sex outside of marriage, if you're married and you're having sex outside of your marriage with someone else, you're opening the door. You're pulling, rolling out a welcome mat for the enemy. If you're involved in Native American 
practices, burning sage, dream catchers. Go on vacation, it's common to buy little cutesy things. I was in our neighborhood early this morning and I saw somebody a couple blocks from our house has a new um, gargoyle on their back porch. It's hideous. Be a shame if something happened to that. <laughs> or you go on vacation, you go to a little thrift shop, and oh, this cute little Buddha thing that burns candles or whatever. You know what? That's opening the door to all kinds of nonsense, all kinds of attacks of the enemy. Dungeons and Dragons and games and uh, uh, Ouija boards and Magic 8 Balls, all that kind of stuff, okay? The things, the entertainment that you watch, the things you allow in your head, the things that you and I consume, the music, the videos, unforgiveness. Those are obvious things. Here are a couple things that aren't so obvious. Generational curses, things that were handed down to you from generation to generation to generation, and it doesn't get broken off. That's an open door for the enemy. You don't realize it. You don't want it, maybe, but it's an open door. Hurt from the past. Real or perceived uh, is an open door for the enemy. Personal agreements, vows that I've made. I will never be like my parents. Agree, that's making an agreement with the enemy in a roundabout way. Pride, okay? You and I need to specifically terminate those agreements. Throw the stuff out if it's ma something material that needs to go. You need to uh, purposely make a, uh, break those vows, break those agreements, terminate anything. In essence, what you're doing, you're pulling out the welcome mat, you're shutting the doors and the windows to your heart and saying, I'm reserved for Jesus. No more of this other stuff in my life. No more junk, okay? And then when you're tempted, when you hear the enemy, we command him to go in Jesus' name. I'll leave you with this. This is good news. This is from uh, Dr. Wheeler, who's a, a Hebrew scholar I like to read a lot. He says this, um, you and I are not stuck with the pattern, the behavior pattern, the thought pattern. We're not stuck with what you've got from Egypt. You're not stuck with that. There's freedom. He says this. He says, the journey that we call salvation is simply the process of going from a condition of live, corruption and guilt, to a condition of nefesh, innocence and dependence. It's progressive and will not be completed until we stand before him. And so the process of salvation is going from uh, morality or immorality, uh, mortality, sin, corruption, to complete freedom. And it's a battle along the way, but it's a battle that's already won. And all we have to do is invoke Jesus' name.